this time, kids can go to Children's Church. I want to thank Chris and Sammy for making that possible. Uh, again, we kind of pulled that together about 845 this morning, so uh, praise God. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua 1, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 178. Joshua 1. Joshua 1, Pew Bible, page 178. And let's pray for help before we study God's word together. Pray with me. Oh God in heaven, we do love your word. Please come now by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray for me. Give me that uh, holy unction that I might preach as one preaching the very oracles of God. Work in every heart, Lord, my own included. Uh, give us repentance, faith, life transformation. Be glorified now through Jesus we pray. Amen. Joshua 1.8. God's word says this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God, give us ears to hear his word. To begin with today, I want to share with you a quote I came across recently that really spoke to me. Uh, this quote, the reason I think it grabbed my attention is because it confirms so much of what I've experienced in 20 years as a pastor. But listen to what the results of this massive survey of over 8,000 Christians concluded. It says, based on a research sample of 8,665 self-identified Christian adults, so a fairly substantial survey, reading the Bible one to three days a week has a negligible effect on a person's life. Reading the Bible four or more days has a profound impact on a person's life. Remember that, please. We, we don't entirely know why, but it does seem as if uh, four is almost this turning point, that if you can get yourself to reading the Bible at least four days a week, profound change starts taking place. Now get this, those who read the Bible at least four days a week are 57% less likely to get drunk, 68% less likely to have sex outside marriage, 61% less likely to view pornography, 74% less likely to gamble. Now this next one I thought was very interesting, 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. Private Bible reading somehow makes it less likely that I'm lonely. 407% more likely to memorize scripture. 228% more likely to share their faith with others, and 231% more likely to disciple others. Remember that quote. And again, in my own experience, I have seen that confirmed time and time and time again. I've encountered many Christians who engage with God's Word occasionally, and for some reason they think that's enough. Maybe they read it once, twice a month, once, twice a week, and then they experience no life change. And here's what they conclude. They conclude, you know, everything the Bible says about Scripture renewing my mind, Scripture transforming me, uh, it must not work in my case. Or, even worse, they conclude, and they might not say it out loud, the Bible must be wrong on this particular matter. When in reality, what's happening is they're starving themselves. They're malnourishing themselves. And were they to get more into the Bible, develop a daily, regular habit of reading God's Word, they'd start experiencing the life transformation that the Bible promises. This is why we've begun every new year here at Trinity with a sermon on daily Bible reading, or at least for the last 15 years. We believe that regular daily meditation on Scripture is vital to you having a healthy Christian life. 
And you can think about it this way. Whatever challenges you're currently experiencing, whatever burdens are on your soul, uh, whatever concerns are on your mind, those would almost certainly be improved considerably were you to carve out time, find the time to meditate on God's Word daily. Because of that, let me say this. If you've never been able to develop a regular Bible reading habit, the place I'd encourage you to begin is with something called the Essential 100 Bible Reading Plan. Raise your hand if you've used this before. Wow, about half of you. Praise God. Uh, We've got free copies of these on the table in the foyer, by the way. The Essential 100 Bible Reading Plan. Now, what this is, uh, obviously it's 100 selected readings, and they only take about five to seven minutes to do, but what they're, they've been chosen strategically throughout the entire storyline of Scripture. So if you use this plan, you'll get not only regular time in God's Word, but sort of an overview of biblical history. And I know that many, including in this congregation, can testify that this little tool has been instrumental in helping them establish a daily Bible reading habit. So again, if you've never done Bible reading before, or if you've really, really struggled with consistency, this is where I'd encourage you to begin. Maybe make this your New Year's resolution for 2024. And again, these are free on the table in the foyer. Well, in these sermons this year, what we're doing is something a little bit different. We're zeroing in on one particular way to meditate on God's Word, and that's through Scripture memory. And like I mentioned last week, the goal of these sermons is not to persuade you to replace your current Bible reading program. You know, if you've got a Bible reading plan that works well for you, that you're, you know, you're getting in the Word at least four days a week and you're experiencing fruitful change, please don't feel like I'm trying to persuade you to change your plan. Continue with that. Uh, keep it up. And instead, what I'm hoping is that maybe you'll consider supplementing your Bible reading plan with a bit of Scripture memory. Uh, you could imagine it this way. Maybe if you make it your goal to memorize one verse a week, And one verse a week, that doesn't sound huge, but imagine you were able to do that for the next five years. Uh, What's that? That's 250 verses. And and as I hope to show you, that would really benefit your Christian life in a lot of ways. That's the goal for these sermons. And I'll let you know that uh, there's going to be a part three to this series. This is just, unfortunately, the way I work. I start throwing thoughts together and pulling things together, and before I know it, what I thought was going to be one sermon has turned into at least three sermons. I don't think it'll be more than three, but at least three. Now, to quickly review what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked carefully at Psalm 119.11, which says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We considered several things in conjunction with that verse. We considered the way in which sin is always hunting us. It's always hunting you. It's coming after you all the time, sneaking around corners, hiding in your closet, hiding under your bed, always trying to get you. We also saw last week the way in which the power to fight that sin is not found within us. Something must be imported, must be implanted in us if we're going to successfully fight sin. And like we saw from that verse, what that thing is, is the Word of God. We store up, we treasure up God's Word in order to fight sin, which we claimed last week was largely through Scripture memory. Additionally, last week we talked about the way in which it is wise to memorize those verses which correspond to the particular temptations you face. Uh, While obviously memorizing any portion of God's Word is beneficial, God can work through that, God can bless through that, it is nonetheless wise to memorize those verses which correspond to your particular temptations. I mean, we all have those besetting sins, don't we? What you need to do is identify the corresponding verses and particularly promises. We're going to talk more about that next week. Obviously, law is helpful to know what is right and wrong, but what empowers us to obey is the promise. So memorize those promises. So just think through your own life. Do I struggle with anxiety? Do I struggle with lust or laziness or pride or greed or whatever? 
Again, let's be honest. We all have these besetting sins. Find those verses, and again, especially promises that correspond to that, and then God can use those to help you fight those temptations when you face them. The last major point, well, a last major point we made last week, was that we memorize Scripture not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And this distinction is so, so very important. We memorize Scripture not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. Uh, Same thing about daily Bible reading. We don't read the Bible daily. We don't come to church regularly. We don't sing God's praises. We don't tell others about Jesus to, say, earn God's favor, earn our way to heaven, move God to love us. Nothing, Nothing like that. No, we spend time in God's word, memorize God's word, out of gratitude for what Jesus has done on the cross and in in the empty tomb to save us from our sins. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not yet placed your hope in the Lord Jesus, we're delighted you're here, especially on a frigid morning like today. Thank you for coming. In fact, there's nowhere we'd rather you be at 1045 on a Sunday morning than here with us hearing God's word, singing God's praises. But if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just explain concisely this entire idea of salvation. Save, what is that all about? God's word, the Bible, tells us that you were made to know God. This is your reason for existence, the reason you're on this planet. It's not to make money. It's not to just have fun. It's not to work a job grinding away for 40 years and then retire and be a greeter at Walmart. No, you exist to have a relationship with God. The problem of it is, however, we've rebelled against our Creator, sinned, uh, turned away from Him. Uh, We do this every day in smaller ways, but really what's going on is our hearts have rejected God. In our hearts, we've told God, we don't want you running our lives. I want to be my own God, thank you very much. We're all guilty of that. Now, Now, think through, we're created to know God and to have a relationship with Him. We've told God to get lost. That is blasphemy of the highest order. And under those circumstances, God would have been just to have just condemned us all. Uh, Said, you don't want me? Be eternally lost forever. But the glorious news of the gospel is he didn't. He loved us even even though we rebelled, and he put into effect a plan of salvation, a way whereby we could be rescued from the judgment our sins deserve. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven. God the Son, Jesus, takes on our flesh and blood. He's, He's a human just like we are, yet without sin. He goes through all the different phases of human development. He's a little tiny baby, toddler, young boy, young man, adult man, experiencing all the afflictions and trials that are characteristic of those different stages of life. But then he dies on the cross for our sins. On the cross, while he's nailed there, hand and foot, he's absorbing the wrath of God, the judgment of God, in the place of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Three days later, God the Father raises him back from the dead to testify that what I'm telling you right now is true. And now he's inviting you, turn from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, be saved from the judgment your sins deserve. That's what salvation is. Turn from your sin, embrace the Lord Jesus with saving. That's the judgment that will most certainly face us if we don't put our hope in the Lord Jesus. This is what it means to be saved. And again, we memorize scripture not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. So I implore you, I beg you, trust Jesus now. If you've never committed yourself body and soul to him, trust him now. Put your hope in his work. Believe on his death and resurrection. Embrace his loving leadership and be saved. Be made right with your creator and enter back into that relationship with God you were created for in the beginning. As always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, you need clarification on something that I just said. Maybe I said something, and truth be told, sometimes I misspeak and don't even realize it. If I said something like that, please talk to me at the door. I'd love to explain this further, more clearly. 
But you can know today that you have been saved and out of gratitude for that salvation, begin memorizing God's word and being changed. Now, coming to today's sermon, I want to do two things. First, I want to talk about biblical examples of scripture memory. We're actually going to quickly survey the entire Bible and look at a number of examples of our brothers and sisters in the faith memorizing God's word. But then we're going to talk about the practical benefits of scripture memory. If I hide God's word in my heart, what daily benefits might I anticipate? Lord willing, that's where we're going today. So first, let's talk about biblical examples of scripture memory. Now, in light of last week, some might think, you know, all this scripture memory stuff, this is just some sort of modern invention. This is something that was like invented by Awana or by the Navigators, uh, both of whom really emphasize scripture memory. I can't imagine a shepherd like 3,000 years ago or a fisherman 2,000 years ago actually taking the time to memorize different verses of God's word. This must be some modern phenomenon. Realize if you're thinking that, I would encourage you, keep reading the Bible. And maybe read the Bible a little bit more carefully, because what you're going to discover is that our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith, they memorized probably 10 times more scripture than even the best of us do today. It's really shocking how much Bible they just had coming out of their lips all the time. Now, to prove this, again, I'd like to quickly survey the entire Bible, and we're going to stop just briefly at different sort of mountain peaks. And I'm going to try and limit myself to places where they're obviously quoting scripture and not necessarily reading from a written text. And again, the point is, again, most of our ancient brothers and sisters, you know, people that believe the same sort of things we do here today, uh, had far more Bible in their memory than even the best of us do here today. To begin with, I want to actually talk about both Eve and Satan. I'm going to read all these passages to you, so you don't need to flip through your Bible, unless you really want to. Obviously, you're always welcome to flip there if you wish. But I want to talk about Eve and Satan. And this is actually an instance of what can happen when you mismemorize Scripture. But listen to Genesis 3.1, and let me make a couple of comments. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Pause there. I'm sure you're familiar with that account. But did you catch that in this passage, Satan is intentionally misquoting Scripture? Uh, this is actually one of his regular strategies, by the way. We'll see him do this again later on when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He intentionally misquotes scripture to cast doubt on the character of God. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If you know Genesis 2, God didn't say anything of the sort. God gave Adam and Eve a thousand and one beautiful, lush, uh, fruitful trees that they could eat from, all, you know, all sorts of fruits and vegetables. I mean, they had more than an abundance. But there was one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they were to avoid. So Satan here, he's intentionally misquoting scripture to lead them into sin. And I believe this is something he continues to do today through false teachers, false prophets. But consider also Eve's response. She too misquotes God's word. In Genesis 3, 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, it's that little phrase there, neither shall you touch it, that I want to draw your attention to. If you go back to Genesis 2, that's not found in God's original command. Back in Genesis 2, it just says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, lest you die. Where did this phrase come from? We don't really know for sure, but a lot of people speculate that Eve's 
memory is faulty, at least, that she's misremembering or misquoting God's word, and that's creating confusion in her mind about the trustworthiness of God. She might even think of God as more strict and harsh than he actually is, and that contributed to her giving in to Satan's temptation. Now, I recognize this is complete speculation, but it does make me wonder what would have happened had Eve properly, precisely memorized God's word. If she had carefully stored up God's word in her heart and not memorized some sort of corrupt paraphrase of it, would that have prevented her from sinning against God? And similarly, it moves me to ask this question of us. Are there ways whereby we're particularly weak, susceptible? Uh, Maybe ways whereby Satan's going to be able to get one of his flaming arrows in there in the chinks of our armor because we've not properly memorized God's word, uh, but sort of this vague, fuzzy, we think the Bible says something like this. You get what I'm saying? Well, moving on, the next stopping point in our survey of Scripture memory is Genesis 48. Genesis 48 and old Jacob. Now, you'll remember Jacob, son of Isaac. He's old and he's about to die. And before he dies, he calls in all of his sons to bless them. You remember this? And in Genesis 48.3, we read this. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply... I'm going to multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples. And I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. A couple quick things to point out with this passage. In this passage, Jacob is quoting a promise God made to him 50 years earlier. If you go back earlier in Scripture, God had said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make a company of peoples come from you, and I will give this land to your offspring, and you will be, uh, pardon me, for an everlasting possession. That was given to Jacob when he was fleeing from his brother Esau 50 years earlier. So for 50 years, he's been basing his hope on this promise. Now here's something that's even more remarkable. We don't think that at this particular time in biblical history, there was any written Scripture. You know, it's not as if Jacob could just get his little Gideon Bible out and flip open to Genesis 28 and remind himself of God's word. No, he had to memorize this promise. But again, for 50 years, he's been living his life on the basis of this promise. He had hidden it in his heart, and that comforted him. Next place I'd like you to consider as we survey Scripture is actually Exodus 34. Exodus 34. This is one of the passages that we use, by the way, for our corporate confessions of faith, and there's a reason for that. Exodus 34 contains the famous passage where God himself describes his character. This is what I am like. Let me read it to you. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, a a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now again, God himself is describing himself here, but what a lot of people don't realize is that this is the most frequently uh, quoted passage throughout the entire rest of the Bible. More authors point back to this passage and quote this passage than any other verse in the entirety of the Bible. To give you just one example of this, listen to Psalm 86.15 and tell me if this sounds familiar. Psalm 86.15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, thinking about all these later biblical authors quoting this passage, is it possible that they were looking at a written copy of the Bible when they wrote it down? Maybe. I actually highly doubt it, though. 
I think they had almost certainly memorized this, and then out of the memorization, it just flowed right out of them. And that's why so many of these authors are quoting this all over the place. Moving on, Joshua 1.8, the verse I read to begin our sermon today. In Joshua 1.8, God says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, thinking about that verse, how do we imagine Joshua obeying that verse? I mean, don't say anything out loud, but just, you know, imagine. How do you think Joshua would put that verse into practice? A lot of us imagine it this way. Joshua, you know, wakes up early, gets out his MacArthur Study Bible, puts it on the coffee table, gets himself a nice big cup of coffee, uh, drinks coffee, and reads the Bible. That's how we imagine Joshua obeying that verse. Obviously, there's a massive problem with that. And keep this Bible, print, Bible study principle in mind. We misunderstand and misinterpret a lot of the Bible because we misimagine it. We imagine things just in ways that are totally impossible, and, and that's why we misread it. Like we talked about last week, at this particular time in history, the Bible was not written in the form that we have it today, not like you know pages bound together. It was written on these great big scrolls. And we have some of these scrolls, we've discovered them through archaeology, and they're like three feet long, about as big around as a large coffee can, and one big one would have contained one, maybe two books of the Bible. So to imagine Joshua obeying this verse by actually carrying these around is just impossible. I mean, and again, think through it. He's a battlefield general. So is he going to have like a wagon full of scrolls with him when he's out on the battlefield? One more thing to think through. Look at what Joshua 1.8 says, and I know that some of you aren't there, but hopefully you've memorized it so you can think through this. It does not say, this book of the law shall not depart from your mind. Nor does it say, this book of the law shall not depart from your heart, but what? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. And I think that's important because for Joshua to obey what this command, this command is commanding him to do, he's going to need to recite God's law, to say it with his mouth. I think that's how he's going to meditate on God's word while out in the battlefield, by reciting it. And the only way he's going to be able to do that is if he's first memorized it. Quickly, moving on. I've just got a few more illustrations of this. Our next illustration is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. I imagine you've heard this before, but the book of Psalms is actually the hymnal of the Bible. Uh, It's a collection of songs set to music designed to be sung. Uh, Our English translations obviously can't convey this, um, but were you to go to, say, seminary and learn Hebrew, you could actually learn how to sing these. There's musical notations all over the place. Um, If I weren't such a horrible singer, I'd try to show you how this could be done, but it can be done. Now, we know that all 150 psalms were sung regularly in the temple, in synagogues, and in families. And this is why so many of them include phrases like, for the choir master, a psalm of David. They're clearly hymns. Now, ask yourself this question. Is it easier to memorize a song or something that's just straight prose? I mean, honestly, it's infinitely easier to memorize a song, isn't it? I mean, this is why all these companies put their jingles to music, because we remember them almost, you know, sometimes against our will. We wish we could forget them, but they keep spinning around in our brains. Now, let me see if we can do one of these. You know, if you're maybe older than 20, you'll remember this one. Rice Aroni. What do I say to that? Um, yes, that's how it went. Again, I always imagine things going differently in my mind. But rice the San Francisco treat, music just sort of somehow gets into our minds and our hearts, and, and we almost can't get it out. 
If any of you were raised in church like I was, you probably have scores of hymns just sort of written on your, the hard drive of your mind, and, and you couldn't forget them if you wanted to. I didn't obviously plan this, but it was kind of convenient the way in which we sang some of these old hymns this morning, um, and it was kind of nice looking around seeing many of you just singing them from memory, probably because you grew up singing them in church. Now, think through the way in which this applies to the book of Psalms. Faithful Jews growing up would have sang all 150 Psalms many, many times. You know, again, in temple, in synagogue, in their homes. Can you imagine how over that time they'd memorize an enormous amount of scripture? And what's more, unlike our hymns, our hymns are obviously wonderful, we praise God for them, we should sing them often, but our hymns are more like uh, man-made paraphrases of Scripture. The Psalms are literally undiluted, inerrant Word of God. So by singing the Psalms, they're getting, again, an enormous amount of Bible into their minds and their hearts. And what's more, one last thought on this, if we go to the book of Colossians or Ephesians, what we discover is that the New Testament church continued to sing the Psalms, thereby getting more and more God's, of God's Word into their hearts. Just a couple of more illustrations. Realize that by the time we get to the birth of Jesus, we know for sure that it was customary for faithful Jews to have memorized the entirety of the Pentateuch. By the time we come to the birth of Jesus, you know, one, whatever, there's a debate over when Jesus was born, but let's say it was 5 BC, and if you're wondering how can that be, ask me at the door. But faithful Jews would have memorized the entirety of the Pentateuch. You know, if you were a good card-carrying, you know, Sunday school-attending Jewish boy or girl, you would have had all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized word for word. This is why when you get to the New Testament, there are so many debates involving quotations from the Pentateuch. I mean, Jesus, the apostles, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, they're always throwing around these verses from the Pentateuch, uh, the way in which, you know, college students often quote Monty Python or Star Wars. You know, it's just the common currency of what they talked about. Sometime I'd encourage you to take a look at a translation of the Bible that puts all the verses from the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament in a different font. All right, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, the New American Standard Bible and the Christian Standard Version both do this. But check out one of these versions and look particularly at the Gospels and the book of Acts. The verses where they're quoting the Old Testament are put in a different font. And again, what you'll see is they're quoting the Bible constantly. This tradition to memorize the entire Pentateuch, it's actually continued down to the present day among certain Orthodox Jews. I came across this quote in a commentary on Exodus I was reading a while back. But listen to what Professor Enns writes about his time in uh, grad school. He says, I'm reminded here of a graduate school experience that has made a lasting impression on me. I was amazed to see that my Jewish professors had the Pentateuch memorized completely in Hebrew, as well as large portions of the rest of the Old Testament. When I asked about a particular passage, one of my professors would pause momentarily, look up at the ceiling, and then recite the passage from memory. I finally asked him how he could memorize so much of the Hebrew Bible. The reason was that from childhood he had chanted or sung the Torah in the synagogue. His pause after being asked a question was to chant the passage to himself before he repeated it to the class in prose form. Now I read that and that, this is what that quote prompts me to ask. If unbelieving Jews who don't know God and who lack the Holy Spirit, if they can so devote themselves to memorizing scripture, how much more should we? who are rightly reconciled to God through Jesus and have the Holy Spirit. Almost done, but let me give you a couple more here. I want you to consider the sermons in the book of Acts. The sermons in the book of Acts. Now, if you've ever read the book of Acts, you'll know that it contains several sermons, and these sermons function as sort of turning points in the flow of the narrative. 
The sermon, say, by Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, or by Peter in Acts 4 at the temple, or several sermons by Paul as he's on his missionary journeys. Now, something important to understand about the sermons in Acts is that unlike the sermons that I preach here, they were completely extemporaneous. What does that mean? Well, when Peter or Paul stood up to preach, they didn't say, all right, guys, y'all hold up. I got to go to my study for 10 hours and prepare a sermon and then come back and I'll preach it to you. No, they just totally spoke off the cuff out of the overflow of the Bible that was already in their hearts. Additionally, I don't think they were using notes like I do. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, on the day of Pentecost, Peter's like, all right, just y'all hold up a second. And he pulls out this little note, you know, and unfolds it and then starts preaching. No, they're preaching extemporaneously, totally off the cuff. Now, if you think that's outrageous, realize that effective extemporaneous speaking, it certainly can be learned. Uh, Just through the rough and tumble of pastoral ministry, I've learned how to do a good bit of it. Uh, We also know that it was customary to teach British schoolboys how to do this for years in the British school system. Along those lines, I imagine that you could give an effective extemporaneous little talk on something you know an awful lot about. You know, say your favorite NFL team or why you think so-and-so should be president of the United States. You know, you could just on the spot, you know, give us three or four points as to why we should do this. This is not something that's totally beyond human capacity. With that in mind, it's remarkable how much scripture is quoted in the sermons in the the book of Acts. Just on the fly, they'll quote the appropriate Old Testament verse and fit it into their argument. Maybe the most stunning example of this is Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, just before he's stoned. And I want to read this a section to you, just a few verses of it, and I've put the verses in different font to make it stand out. Uh, the entire thing is like 70 verses, uh, but, but it follows this sort of pattern here of him preaching, quoting a verse, him preaching, quoting a verse, entirely from memory. But just let me give you a sample of this. Stephen says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thornbush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. And then he quotes, just totally from memory, a verse from Exodus, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, and as you can see, he quotes an entire section from Exodus, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. And come now, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, and again he quotes scripture, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, and again he quotes a verse. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Again, maybe in your devotions, take a look at this sermon, and here's what you'll get. This sermon, if you read it aloud, it only takes about 10 minutes to read the entire thing. But he quotes completely from memory 15 different Bible verses. So a 10-minute little sermon quoting 15 different Bible verses entirely from memory. And here's something even more remarkable. Pardon me, Stephen was not an apostle. He was not a pastor, not an elder. He was a deacon in the church. Deacon's wonderful, but a deacon is not a professional teacher that we think of, Uh, but just a guy set apart to feed the widows who were being neglected in the distribution of the food. Let that be an encouragement to our deacons and would-be deacons of the importance of memorizing God's word. Let me give you one last illustration, and this is probably the most famous one. Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. 
Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. Now, just to remind you a bit of what we said last week, Jesus is fully, truly God. But in addition to that, he's also fully, truly human. And in his humanity, he had to learn. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God and man. Jesus was not born with the Bible already imprinted on his brain, but he had to spend hours and hours and hours over years memorizing it. And he did that so that he would have it accessible for later temptations and struggles. Now, when we come to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, I remind you that Jesus is entirely alone. Moreover, he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, just imagine how that would deplete your memory. I mean, if I don't get a good night of sleep, my memory's kind of shot the next day. Imagine fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we read the account earlier in the service, so I won't reiterate the entire thing here, but Satan tempts Jesus three separate times, and interestingly, he appeals to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And each time, what did Jesus do? He refuted that temptation with an appropriate scripture verse. And they weren't verses just plucked out of thin air, but they were ones that corresponded to the temptations that Satan brought his way. Let me put it this way. Jesus refuted the devil's temptations with an appropriate scripture memory verse every time. And do you know what book they all came from? If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably know. What book was he quoting from? Deuteronomy. And it makes you wonder, if I was in some sort of battle with Satan and I was limited to the book of Deuteronomy, how many verses, I don't know if, you know, don't, don't tell everybody this. I don't know if I know a single verse right now from Deuteronomy. Then after successfully refuting these temptations with Scripture, what happened? Luke 4.13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I actually think Jesus is modeling for us here James 4.7, which says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You read that verse and you're like, how do I do that? How do I, you know, do I get out weird candles and crystals and, you know, draw circles with chalk on the floor? No. You, you quote God's word to him, and there's so much power in God's word that that's how you resist the devil. Now, I realize I'm giving you a lot to think about here, but we've looked at illustrations from throughout the entire storyline of Scripture, and hopefully the point's clear. Most of our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith had dramatically more Scripture committed to memory than even the best of us do today. Now, by nearly every estimation, the modern evangelical church in America is extraordinarily weak and sickly. I won't rehash all the statistics, but you've heard about the way in which professing Christians in America, they, they live indistinguishable from the world. Whether it be divorce rates, pornography use, addictions, cheating on their taxes, whatever, uh, sadly, those who claim the name of Jesus in our country live just like the rest of the world, those who are idolaters. Now, there are an awful lot of factors that go into explaining that, not the least of which is that most professing Christians aren't Christians at all. They're self-deceived and don't know the Lord. But I also believe that what we've been talking about here this morning relates. You know, think about this. If you know more NFL statistics than Bible verses, or if you know more uh, catchy lines from some comedy movie than Bible verses, or if you know more secular song lyrics than Bible verses, should we be surprised when we're weak and easy prey? What is it that beats back the devil but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? But get this, if you can't get that sword out of the sheath because you don't know it very well and haven't memorized it, what good is it going to do? Again, our ancient brothers and sisters memorized enormous portions of God's Word, and because of that, they were able to overcome temptation. They were able to endure the persecutions of the early church. They were able to eventually conquer the entire Roman Empire. But how about us? 
How about you? Are you storing up God's word in your heart that you might not sin against God? We're almost done, but let me give you quickly a few practical benefits of Scripture memory. You'd call it that next slide if you would. A few practical benefits of Scripture memory. I've only got four of these, and I'm going to go through them quickly. But first, by memorizing Scripture, you'll meditate on Scripture in the process of memorization. By memorizing Scripture, you'll meditate on Scripture in the process of memorization. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, tell me if you've ever had this experience. You're reading a Bible passage that you've heard a hundred times before. You know, Genesis 1, John 3, Romans 8. You've heard it a hundred times before, but then for some reason, on the hundred and first time, something just jumps off the page, grabs your attention. It's always been there, but for whatever reason, you haven't seen it before. But now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it, and your life has changed. Raise your hand if you've had that experience. A lot of you. Here's what I've experienced time and time again in Scripture memory. As I'm memorizing the verse, that sort of thing happens. And interestingly, it's often with verses I've heard a zillion times. You know, John 3.16, Romans 8.28. And, and the way in which, I'll, I'll try to explain this further next week. Next week, I'm going to try and make this as practical and as specific as possible. How is it that I memorize Scripture? But I read the verse out loud over and over and over again. And the first hundred times, you know, nothing jumps off the page. But the hundred and first time, all of a sudden, the lights come on. I see something. Again, it's been there all along, but for whatever reason, I couldn't see it. And again, my life has changed. I believe you can have that kind of experience. You will have that kind of experience if you commit yourself to memorizing Scripture. And honestly, for me, this is the most enjoyable thing. I've, I've kind of come to the point where I anticipate it happening. You know, I, I, what I do is I use these like little three-by-five cards, like the ones you get at the uh, you know, staples, and I actually handwrite it out. And at, you know, I, I'm kind of anticipating, okay, what's going to jump off the, verse, off the page here? What's really going to grab my attention? And virtually every single time I see something, again, it's not like... I mean, I'm seeing stuff that wasn't there, imagining stuff. It's just, you know, due to blindness, due to ignorance, due to how hurried we are, I didn't grab it, but then all of a sudden it strikes me, and I'm like, wow, I can't be the same after this because now I see it. Again, you can have that experience if you'll memorize Scripture. By memorizing Scripture, you'll meditate on Scripture in the process of memorization. Quickly, a second benefit. Memorized verses will come to mind in a wide variety of situations, but, very importantly, they have to be memorized first for this to happen. Memorized verses will come to mind in a wide variety of situations, but they have to be memorized for this to happen. Now, I know we talked a good bit about this last week as it pertains to temptation. But if you've memorized those verses that correspond to the temptations you face, you will find them, and again, I... I don't know entirely if this is the Holy Spirit, if it's just like conscience, if it's common sense, if it's maybe a combination of all, uh, but they will kind of come to mind while you're facing that temptation. And suddenly, you'll, you'll experience a change come over you. You'll experience both a guilt over what you were contemplating doing, but also a power to obey that you didn't previously feel. Anybody ever had that experience? I experience this like virtually every single day. Something similar can take place when opportunities to do good works come your way. Say you've memorized love your neighbor as you love yourself, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or forgive others as you have been forgiven. As such opportunities come your way, you'll remember this verse, and again, you'll find this strange power filling you, enabling you to obey. Personally, one of my favorite ways that I've seen this happen pertains to prayer. 
prayer. As I'm praying for this and that, again, a relevant verse will come to mind, and I'll turn it into a prayer. I'll pray, Lord, today help me to believe that you are the God who works all things together for good. Lord, help me to believe that having been justified by faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help me to believe uh, that today you have good works prepared for me to do, which you prepared beforehand, that I should walk in them. You see what I'm saying? God loves hearing his word recited, but I think he even loves it even more when we turn it into prayer. Again, in all of these situations, memorized verses will come to mind and empower you in a way that I can't fully describe. I, I think it is, at the end of the day, the power of the Holy Spirit working through his word. But I can't stress this enough. That can't happen if you haven't first memorized the verses. They're not just going to fall into your head when you need them. Quickly, a third benefit to memorizing God's word. Memorized verses are incredibly useful tools in evangelism, discipleship, and when giving biblical counsel. Memorized verses are incredibly useful tools in evangelism, discipleship, and when giving biblical counsel. Now, this shouldn't require too much imagination to figure out what I'm talking about here. But say you're sharing the gospel with a coworker, try to naturally weave into the conversation a quotation of, say, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or, or say you're talking to a new believer and you're talking about how should I manage my money. You could say, you know, we, we Christians are to give a portion of our income to the church, or you could try to naturally weave in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, which says on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as the Lord has prospered him, that there be no collections when I come. Or let's say somebody's come to you for advice, for counsel, on, say, what kind of person they should marry, or what career they should pursue, or what kind of politician they should vote for. I mean, you can fill in the blank. Hopefully, you can weave into these conversations verses from the Bible. Now, is it Good and helpful to give counsel, give advice without quoting scripture? Of course. I mean, far better than listening to you know, what's on TV or something like that. But nonetheless, there is a power in the word that does not reside in our explanations of that word. Let me repeat that and explain what I mean. There is a power in the quoted word that doesn't reside in our explanations of the word. You know, there have been many, many times in my own ministry when I've explained a biblical concept, and people are kind of looking at me squinty-eyed, they're like, I don't know if I get that. But then if I can quote a chapter and verse, they're like, all right, I'll do that. There does seem to be, and I think this, in a way, is a marker of true Christians. When they recognize that something is explicitly found in God's Word, they will surrender to it, whereas they won't if they think it's just kind of like your personal common sense or something like that. You following me? Let me give you one final practical benefit of memorizing Scripture, and this is so obvious it's easy to forget. But if you've memorized Bible verses, you'll have the ability to meditate on God's Word if you're away from a printed Bible or your phone. If you've memorized Bible verses, you'll have the ability to meditate on God's Word if you're ever away from a printed Bible or your phone. Now, ask yourself, have you had this situation? You're stuck waiting in the doctor's waiting room, and you've been there like 45 minutes, and you've got nothing to do. You've looked at the cat picture on the wall a hundred times, and you know you have zero to do. Or you're waiting for a bus to arrive, or you're stuck in an elevator. Or I mean, we've all been in these situations where we're just stuck waiting, have nothing to do, bored out of our brains. You been there? Realize you can transform what otherwise would be a waste of time into a time of communion with God through memorized scripture. So let's just imagine you're stuck in traffic, car's not going anywhere. You've been there 45 minutes. You're already late to work. Maybe next time try this. Start chewing on John 3.16 in your brain. Just turn it over and over again. What does it mean that God so loved the world? 
Is that like so much, or is that this is how he loved the world? What does the world include? Who is in that? What does everlasting life include? Does that begin when I die, or does it begin now? What does believe really mean? Is that just mentally assenting? You know, just chew on this while you're sitting there in traffic. And again, you can take what would otherwise be a massive waste of time and turn it into something that will bear fruit for eternity. But again, you can only do that if you've previously memorized God's word. Well, to close up our time this morning, I hope I've persuaded you of the incredible value of memorizing God's word, of storing it up in your heart. Memorizing God's word is what characterized our ancient brothers and sisters and is a large part of why they were so godly and fruitful. And memorizing God's word, it has many incredibly helpful benefits that, that you could be partaking of. So all of this, you might be saying, you know, I'm with you, I'm convinced. I'd like to start memorizing God's word, but how do I do this? Where do I begin? Could you give me a very practical way? Just, just lay it out. How do you, Pastor Tim, memorize God's word? Because I'd like to start doing this right now. Well, I'm really glad you asked that. But to get that, you'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you so much for your precious word, and we thank you for the power of it. Power to give us new life, power to defeat Satan and his temptations, power to bear fruit, power to persevere. Please make us people that take advantage of your word, who store it up in our hearts that we might not sin against God. Uh, Lord, we do pray as a whole congregation that this would become just part of the DNA of who we are as a church. Um, help us, obviously, to rightly interpret it, rightly apply it, not to twist it like the devil did. Um, but again, allow us to experience the life-changing power of your word through scripture memory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.